Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am thrilled to have back again. He was on not long ago, Stephen Taylor. He's the author of many books, including The Clear Light, The Leap, The Calm Center. And today we're going to talk about his latest book, Extraordinary Awakenings. He's a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University and the current chair of the transpersonal psychology section of the British Psychological Society. Steve's articles and essays have been published in over 100 academic journals, magazines, and newspapers, and he blogs for Scientific American and Psychology Today. Steve, welcome. Hi there. It's great to be back with you. Yeah, you too. I really enjoy our conversations. And I love this book for people that uh, get to watch the video. I'm going to hold it up here. Extraordinary Awakenings When Trauma Leads to Transformation. So I'm really amazed, Steve, at uh, the emergence of the awareness of trauma. And I wonder if you just start, I know you've been doing groups for some time and I've been doing groups and, and uh, there's just this enormous emergence. And I think it's tied into the awakening. So maybe let's talk about how you see trauma in relationship to what is awakening. Trauma is definitely one of the, one of the sources of awakening. And in particular, when awakening arises very suddenly, it's usually connected to, to trauma. I, th- I think that, the um, you know the the reason for it for that is quite simple really. I think trauma can have an ego dissolving effect. You know, if you go through a long period of period of trauma, or not necessarily trauma, but you know any period of turmoil or suffering in your life, eventually when the suffering is intense enough, your your ego begins to dissolve away. You know, just like a, a building you know breaks down in an earthquake. So I think you know, in that in in that process of ego dissolution, a new spiritually awakened self can emerge inside you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love um, Thomas Hubel's description of trauma as frozen past, which could also be, of course, ancestral, familial, cultural, all of that. But the idea that when we have trauma, it's not the trauma that's actually the issue. It's the things that it does inside of us. And so Mm -hmm. this whole idea of extraordinary awakenings, well, let's, let's look at what had you write this book and how did you feel it could support other people who perhaps haven't had these kinds of issues that we talk about in this book that we will talk about the transformation through turmoil issues. I had my own uh, uh, kind of mini awakening because I think, you know, from a young age, I was always quite a spiritual person. But I've had a few moments in my life where my spirituality has kind of intensified. And one of those moments was about 15 years ago when I became seriously ill. 
I was in hospital for three weeks, you know, very, 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 very sick. There was, you know, danger that I would die. And when I recovered and when I began to be aware of my body healing, the healing process in my body, I was just, I was so amazed. I was, I felt like I was, I was in heaven, you know, I, was, I felt that life was a miracle, that my body was a miracle. I was aware of all these, you know, incredibly intricate biological mechanisms in my body that were helping to heal me. And I could feel energy from other people too, who were sort of helping, you know, sort of sending me uh, positive vibrations and sending me prayers and so forth. So I was aware of all this, all of this stuff going on. And so when I, when I returned to health and my energy returned, I felt so grateful. I thought, wow, this is such a miracle to be alive, to be in this body, to be in a healthy functioning body. And I felt grateful for everything. I felt grateful to my family. You know, sometimes we take people for granted if we've known them for a long time, but that kind of just was just wiped away from me. Uh, and I just felt so grateful to be alive in the world, you know, and, and I realized how temporary and fragile and precious life was, is. So after that experience, I, I wanted to investigate similar experiences. And I found that it was quite a common experience, that not just health challenges, but also things like addiction, uh, long periods of depression or stress, bereavement. You know, so I, I found all of these different situations which could lead to a spiritual awakening, not just a temporary, you know, burst of spirituality, but a kind of ongoing, stable, spiritually awakened state, which became completely normal to people. And um, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's such a it really is such a common phenomenon. That you know, every week, you know, I, I'm sent details of other cases or people write to me to say that they've been a similar process. So, you know, the more I investigate it, the more the richer and more interesting it becomes. Yeah, it's really amazing. I had uh, my own experience like that and a little bit different lesson, although gratitude was there. But uh, I had my wisdom teeth pulled out and they didn't pack them right. And I passed out from bleeding and my roommate came home and found me in a pile of blood or a pool of blood on the floor. And the next thing, well, I didn't know that because I was unconscious, but I remember being on a gurney in the hospital and I was like a convex mirror up looking down on the whole thing. It was like a fisheye look, you know, and oh, I, was, yeah. I was watching the whole thing and they were talking about that I had no vital signs, but I was there and I was like, I'm here, you know, I'm here. And, and wow. so, you know, they did all the things they did in the hospital. But the thing that really got me was choice. And I want to talk about that. And what happened was this kind of arm, a hand and an arm came down and mm -hmm. I felt myself wanting to grab it. And then I went, no, I'm not ready. And wow. I remember making a choice and then I popped back and came, and came back to life and I was gone for like a minute, you know, wow. uh, Amazing. and it seemed like an eternity, but it was, it was only on in clock time a minute. Yeah. But my, my outcome of that was moving. I guess the transformation for me was moving from feeling that I was an unwanted child, which I, I think I was, you know, an unwanted child, to making a choice to be here. Right. It was in itself kind of a transformational event and led me on the path, which I've been on 
ever since you know i oh amazing dabbled a little bit before and done right. things like est you know landmarks things and and mm -hmm. you know listen to different recordings and but it was really a, a turning point for me at that point wow, and so i amazing. i'm just saying that to underline this idea of it's becoming more and more when you talk to other people oh yeah i had one of those i yeah. remember that happening so, you know, in, in your book, let's talk about some of the, the things that you talk about in there. So you call it transformation through turmoil, and you That's have right. a half a do dozen different areas that you look at from war, bereavement, incarceration. I, I, I'm not sure what are the other areas. You had a number of areas you talked about. Yeah. So. Yeah. Talk about transformation through turmoil and the diff the differences between the different types of people you studied. It's um, it's quite a you know it's a phenomenon which occurs in different contexts, but essentially it's always the same phenomenon. You know, and you, you you've probably heard about post traumatic growth, which is quite a, a, a common commonly accepted concept in psychology. And post traumatic growth is very common. I think research suggests that around almost fifty percent of people will undergo some degree of post-traumatic growth eventually in the aftermath of their trauma. So they'll get an enhanced sense of appreciation. It's their that high. I, yeah. I, I wouldn't have guessed it was that high. Yeah. Well, they, I think the actual figure is 47%. Wow. But obviously there are degrees of, uh, you know, degrees of uh, growth. So we're not really talking about spiritual awakening. We're talking about sort of personal growth, which is probably more, you know, less intense, but well, that, essentially it is a kind of spiritual development. That's a that's that's an important distinction I think that you make the difference between a kind of temporary awakening and a spiritual awakening or one that sticks. Can you talk about the difference between those two? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of people have spiritual experiences or as I prefer to call them awakening experiences. Mm -hmm. We often have those when we're in in the contact in, in contact with nature. They may occur, you know, after sexual encounters. Uh, after meditation, um, they may they may occur at a pop concert, you know, or a classical music concert. So they're, they're sort of temporary experiences, you know, feelings of ecstasy and connection and heightened perception and so forth. But they only last for maybe a few seconds, maybe a few minutes, maybe a few hours if you're lucky, and then they fade away again. And, you know, usually they leave a sort of a pleasant aftertaste. You know, you have a sense of optimism after these experiences a sense that life is more meaningful. But essentially, you know, the experience is over and you return to your normal state of consciousness. But in, in transformation through turmoil, there is a, a much more sustained transformation. Sometimes it's very intense to begin with. Sometimes it's incredibly intense. It's so intense that people struggle to deal with it. It's kind of overwhelming. It's kind of explosive. It's so dramatic. But um, usually... It sort of de-intensifies a little bit after a few days or a few weeks, but it remains at a low level of intensity. And people feel so different that they, it's almost as if they become different people, you know, literally they are different people living the same body. So it's a, it's a much more radical and sustained transformation. One of the things I love about your book, Extraordinary Awakenings, is that um, <clears throat> you get the history of it and the, you know, see what happens uh, uh, in the development and the ongoing aspect of it rather than just this event. I thought that was a really important part. Um, and you 
Go ahead. You were going to say something. Oh yeah, I mean, just the, the fact that um, you know, in some cases, I interviewed people who were seventy or seventy years old or older, mm-hmm. and they talked about transformations which occurred decades earlier. You know, when they were in the twenties or thirties, but it had sustained itself all of that time. You know, throughout their whole lives, yeah. and it led them to it. You know, follow a certain profession. Like one woman, one woman had a um, a transformation when she was fourteen after a friend of hers died. And it affected her so deeply that it kind of determined the course of her life. She trained to be a nurse because she wanted to do something compassionate where she could help other people, where she could alleviate people's suffering. So, yeah, so it does tend to sustain itself over, well, for the rest of a person's life. Mm-hmm. How did you find the people? Were they from your groups or people wrote you or what? Some people were um, students of mine at university because... I, I teach a course on transpersonal psychology, which is really spiritual psychology, as you know. Right. And we attract um, you know, people who've had these kind of experiences because they want to understand the experiences. They've had them a few years before, but they don't you know, completely understand them. They want to make some sense of them and, and they want to kind of um, create a context where they can understand the experiences and you know, they want to study them in an academic context. So, uh, you know, so a few of the people were... Um, from our courses at university, including two soldiers. And we had two soldiers from the, the British military who had had awakening. Auckland, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And one guy who'd been in Iraq and Afghanistan and had spiritual right. experiences, which had led to a kind of a permanent shift. So, yeah, and others uh, I found through social media, others were recommended to me by people, by friends that say, oh, you've got to speak to this person. He's had this amazing transformation. He was in prison. He's been in prison for 40 years. That was one person in my book, um, Ed from Arkansas, who's been in prison for 40 years now. He was recommended by a correspondent of mine. I love that story. Let's, let's, yes. Before we get into the stories, which I really want to do, you talk about the four different areas of our awareness expanding around perception, inner intensity, connection with others, and kind of a more global connected sense. Am I... Am I saying it right yeah. the four areas that you're you're looking yeah at. that's right mm-hmm. yeah that's how i define spiritual awakening you know because right. i think you can look at spiritual awakening outside the context of any particular tradition essentially it's a kind of it's an experience which happens to a human being which is sometimes interpreted in terms of different spiritual traditions or different worldviews but essentially it's an experience which anybody can undergo outside in, in fact in my experience and in my research it does most frequently happen outside the context of spiritual traditions. But yeah, it does have those four characteristics. Essentially, it's an expansion of awareness and it's an experience of increased connection. So the, the first area is perception. So our perception becomes more intense. The world around us becomes more real and more beautiful and more interesting, more fascinating. And we feel more connected to it. And Uh, The second area is that we feel more connected to other people. There's an expansion of awareness in terms of our relationships to other people. So we become more. A break in separation is how, when I read that, I went, you know, so much of our suffering, I I think all of our suffering is based in this myth of separation. So connection is really important uh, for people to be able to open to others and relate to others. Yeah. I think that, you know, if if you had to define spiritual awakening in one term, I think it would be, you know, transcendence of separation yeah. or, or connection. 
That's right. essentially what it's all about in every in every tradition. But um, yeah, so that that's the second way in which it occurs. So people become much more empathic, more compassionate, and much more altruistic because they sense other people's suffering. And then there's just, there's an expansion in terms of our own subjective awareness too, because we become more aware of our own beings. We explore the depths of our own beings, and we become aware of much more, you know, much more than we ever expected within our own being. And finally, yeah, there's this expansion of conceptual awareness so we know how we no longer have a kind of egocentric outlook when we're really we're mainly concerned with our own ambitions or desires uh, or maybe you know at a stretch the desires of our own community or our own group or the you know the goals of our own community or group so we we, we expand beyond that and develop a kind of a world-centric or global-centric perspective where we're just a, we're a member of the human race we're not a member of any particular group we're just a member of the human race. We're not. A, we don't have a nationality. We don't have a kind of, you know, a religious or political identity. We we just, you know, we're just members of the human race, and we don't discriminate, you know, according to different races or different, you know, any kind of group identity. So there's a, there's that kind of very wide conceptual outlook as well. Yeah, I, I'd love to get into talking about some of them and the psychological process that, um, you know, to point out as we go through, like, there's so many great ones. I'll take one of the first ones, the young woman that um, started out young, she um, met the uh, very wealthy person, they got into drugs, then she ended up in jail and all the different things she went through. Um, uh, oh, yeah. You know, that was one of the ones, well, many of them were inspiring. We, all of them were inspiring. And that's one of the things yeah. I like about the book, Steve, really, is you can see yourself in that place. Maybe you're not in a prison that is a cell, but, you know, when we begin to realize the prison of our own um, self-identity and narrative, uh, mm. you, you can kind of see that in these stories of they left particular senses of who they thought they were and entered another area so maybe maybe just talk about a few and and talk about the as you see the process they went through and and the points in that process that were openings hmm uh yeah well let's start with ananta then you mentioned ananta she was the one yeah. who she was sort of mixed up with drugs and uh, living a kind of wild life she had quite a, she was she ended up being a sannyasin but still didn't didn't uh have the uh breakthrough in that so yeah no no she she obviously had a i think what happened was that she she was married or together with a very rich saudi arabian man right. almost a billionaire or something like that so she was living this kind of rich incredibly wealthy life and she realized quite early on that it wasn't actually bringing her any fulfillment you know, it was kind of like it's, it's the, the myth of the American dream or the myth of any materialistic dream that when you get it all, you know, so what? It, it doesn't actually bring you any satisfaction. You can live in, in a gold plated palace. You know, you can have endless pleasure on tap, but it doesn't actually bring you happiness. But sometimes you need to experience it to realize that it's so hollow. So I think she realized that it was so hollow and, you know, and thought to herself, there must be something else. There must be some other meaning in life. So that drew her towards spirituality. But even, even whilst being interested in spirituality, she was, she was still dabbling in this kind of very hedonistic lifestyle, which led to her imprisonment in Japan. 
Um, so she was in prison in Japan. Well, what happened was that I'm sure she wouldn't mind me telling you since it's in the book, but she was, um, you know, she was arrested in possession of drugs with intent to, to deal drugs, although yeah, they weren't actually her. Yeah. She was looking after them for a friend. So she was sent to prison for three years in Japan. And, um, you know, it was a very kind of hostile environment, probably much worse than European or even American prisons. They weren't allowed to speak. They had to work in a factory all day for, you know, 16 hours a day in really severe conditions. And, um, you know, so after a few months of this, she felt she was completely broken down physically and mentally. She was worn out. And every, every evening she'd come back to her cell in a, in a lot of physical pain and emotional pain as well. And I think she had, she had a, a few books in her cell and she'd read a few, you know, a page or so of a book and then go to sleep. But one, this particular evening, she was in so much pain that, that she couldn't focus on the book. She just couldn't concentrate. So she decided that rather than resisting the pain, which is what she normally did, she'd just let go and drop, she called it dropping into the pain. So she just stopped resisting and just allowed herself to sink deeper and deeper into the pain. And she really felt herself, felt herself going deeper and deeper and deeper, like, like she was entering a kind of whirlpool. And at a certain point, you know, when she allowed herself to go incredibly deep within herself, a kind of light emerged inside her, a feeling of bliss and freedom just emerged inside her, almost like a, you know, a dam had burst and water was flooding through. So she was flooded with this feeling of elation and freedom, you know, that pure joy and pure light. And, you know, as she had a, she had a little bit of a background in spirituality, so she knew there was something spiritual about it, although she didn't really understand it. But from that point onwards, everything changed. Her attitude to life in the prison changed, and she was filled with this constant feeling of well-being and this kind of buoyant optimism. And it changed everything. She didn't need, really need to eat anymore. She'd, she'd eat very little, but be, but be able to survive. So she changed physically as well in a strange way. She needed less sleep. It was almost as if she sort of touched something, you know, like a golden core within herself. Mm. That are a bit like, you know, in, in Indian philosophy, they talk about cities, you know, the kind of psychic powers. Right. And it was a bit like she's sort of naturally attuned to some cities inside her that enabled to, that sustained her in this, um, in these terrible conditions. So she, you know, she, it was no longer an issue for her to be in prison. She, she just sort of rode with it very easily. She was like floating on this kind of wave of, of bliss. But her, you know, but, but when she was released from prison after three years, that was when it got really difficult because she had to try to adjust to normal life again. And she found it really difficult. I mean, partly maybe it was actually being in prison for three years and then being thrown into the world again. But it was also trying to live in this heightened state of awareness. And she didn't really know what had happened. She, she knew there was something spiritual but she always associated enlightenment with something very blissful and stable and a kind of, a kind of like a kind of emptiness, a kind of emotional emptiness. But she said she still felt emotions very intensely. So she, she didn't think she was enlightened. She didn't, she didn't really know what it was. But when she went back to the UK, everybody thought she'd had some kind of breakdown and everybody wanted her to go to see a psychiatrist, you know, and to take medication. But luckily she, she knew that that wasn't the case. And finally, I think it was about three years after she returned to England, she went to, to a talk by a spiritual teacher and she had a conversation with the teacher. And he said, you know, you've, you've become awakened. You know, you've, you've been through an awakening experience. And she thought, have I? 
And then she realized, so she began to read more about spirituality and non-duality. And she realized that she had been through a spiritual awakening. And eventually, you know, she became a spiritual teacher herself, which she is now mm. as a Ananta Kranti based, mm. in, based in the UK. Yeah. I love the chapters of her life too. You know, all the things that happened, the, the getting busted in Japan where she got five years, I guess she got out in three, but uh, was not even her drugs. So there's a, right. there would be a great feeling, I would think, that one of the reasons I liked it was there would be a great feeling of being betrayed. You know, her friend brought these and left them with her. Mm. Um, and so all of that she overcame. So that, that really was an incremental kind of awakening in, in a way. Talk about ones that are like those kind of awakenings. Yeah, I think in most cases they are quite sudden. You know, they, they can be gradual, but in most cases I investigated, they tend to be quite explosive in, in a single moment of transformation. A good example was, um, you know, there's a chapter on, addic on addiction in the book. And I, I tell the story of a Scottish lady called Eve, who's now, I think she's in her late 40s now. But she was, uh, from a very young age, she was a heavy drinker. She was an alcoholic from a young age. And she ended up, you know, as a heavy drinker for 29 years. And for a lot of that time, she was kind of like a functioning alcoholic. But towards the end, as it usually does, you know, everything began to break down. And eventually she lost everything. You know, she lost her friends who couldn't trust her anymore. She broke contact with her family. She couldn't hold down a job. You couldn't sort of sustain any, any relationship. She had no money. And she became homeless, living on the streets in Edinburgh. And she was like shoplifting just to just to keep going and just to keep herself supplied with alcohol. And, and you know, she, she did try to give up. You know, she went on programs and went to AA, but she just couldn't do it. She just couldn't stop. And by the end, she was only drinking to, you know, to, you know, to stop the withdrawal symptoms. She was just drinking to stop herself shaking or to stop the visions or the hallucinations and terrible feelings of panic. So she wasn't actually gaining anything from the from drinking anyway. So eventually she decided she was, she was going to commit suicide because there was no hope. You know, she, she couldn't stop drinking and she had nothing left in her life. So she knew that there was um, a coach which traveled from Edinburgh to Glasgow at a certain time. So she waited for the coach by the side of the road and jumped in front of it when it came. And luckily the, the driver swerved, so she survived. And the police were called and she thought she was going to be arrested. But the policeman was actually a nice guy and said, uh, you know, how did you end up in this situation? You know, can I do something? Can I take you somewhere? Is there somewhere somewhere you can go? And she said, well, just take me to my parents. So she went to her parents' house and they hadn't seen her for a long time. Um, and her mother assumed that because she was an alcoholic, she had to give her a drink. So she gave her a glass of wine. But Eve, she picked up the glass and then put it down again. She picked it up, put it down again. She didn't, so this happened several times. For some reason, she wasn't able to drink it. And then um, the doctor came and gave her some sedatives um, to control the withdrawal symptoms. And after that, you know, when she recovered consciousness, she looked at herself in the mirror and didn't recognize herself. She said, who is that person? I, I, I've got no association with that person in the mirror. And she said it was an incredibly strange phenomenon, but she felt she was like a different person in the same body. Mm -hmm. 
And, and the feeling, the desire to drink had just gone away in some strange, miraculous way. It just dropped away. Um, and she was filled with this sense of kind of stable well-being, which she'd never had before. And this feeling of connection to her surroundings, like everything looks real and, and fresh in a way that it had never done before. And she felt as though she could empathize with other people in a way that she had never done before. She could connect with people. So she, again, she didn't, you know, she had no background in spirituality, so she didn't really understand what happened. But she went to, she started to go to AA meetings and somebody said to her, ah, you, you sound like you've had a spiritual awakening. And she thought, well, what does that mean? But she began to find out more about it and realized that that was probably the case. And also at AA, somebody said to her, you're on a pink cloud. You know, this is going to, this isn't going to last for long. It's just a temporary thing. But it didn't. It just continued in the same way. She never lost that sense of well-being. So 10 years later, she's never had any desire to drink. And that feeling of connection and appreciation and empathy has never gone away. You know, so she's a really inspiring person. She still works in AA. But, um, but her experience was different. Most people in AA, in AA you know, they, they have to take it a day at a time. You know, staying sober can be a bit of a struggle. But for her, you know, she said at first she felt guilty because it wasn't a struggle at all. She didn't need to do anything. You know, the desire to drink had just suddenly gone away. So I think in her case, the, the spiritual awakening occurred right after her suicide attempt. That was the point when something new you know, that was probably a point where her, her ego collapsed completely and a new self was born inside her, you know, a kind of a latent, spiritually awakened self emerged inside her. Yeah, there was a death there, too. I mean, she did attempt to jump in front of the train and, and um, you know, that, that was that in itself was a death of something. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, you know, we hear a lot about more famous people like Sri Aurobindo and Nelson Mandela, Buckminster Fuller. I was remembering his story. Mm, as that's right. He uh, was so distraught. He'd lost all his friend's money and this invention that he was trying to make this Dymaxian car. And, and he went to the bridge because he felt he was a throwaway and he had this idea. I'm just a throwaway. Mm. And, and before he jumped, uh, from the bridge, he had this thought, well, if I'm a throwaway, then um, what, what could one person do to make a difference if they're just a throwaway? And, mm. and he decided to, he asked that question, what can one person make a difference? And he, he actually set a 50 year commitment when he came off the bridge to mm. see what one person could make a difference. Interesting, he died just just after the 50, 50th. I happened to see him just before that. Yeah, really. And he was in his mid-80s then. Um, wow. But we hear about these people that have had them, uh, that have written books, you know, or Nelson Mandela, Sri Aurobindo. And we tend to think it takes a special kind of person. Mm. What you're showing here is these are ordinary people that are having a, a hard, you know, difficult time. Um, yeah. So talk about the, 
how this rely, relates to anybody who's suffering. You don't have to be John of the Cross, uh, you know, Ooh. suffering. We all do. Yeah. Well, I've always felt that um, spiritual awakening is much more common than most people believe. You know, I mean, I, I had this view myself when I was younger. I thought that spiritual awakening or enlightenment only happened to, you know, people who lived in Tibet, monks in Tibet, or maybe Indian gurus, maybe a few monks who'd been meditating or praying for 50 years. But that's not the case at all. You know, it happens to a lot of ordinary people in the midst of everyday life, people who don't know anything about spirituality. And that's why it's, it's sometimes difficult for them to comprehend. That's why they are sometimes confused. But it, it is you know, much more common than we realize. And I, I'm sure that a lot of people have undergone spiritual awakening, but they've never told people about it. They yeah. maybe don't even understand it themselves. So they, they're, you know, they're reluctant to talk about it. But, um, but yeah, from, from that point of view, it's, it's certainly you know, quite common. Well, one of the things that we all experience in our life sooner or later is bereavement of losing someone oh, close yeah. to us. And I think I think you said that was the one that you found the most amount of certainly it right. is an area where there are a lot of awakenings in in the loss of someone. Can you share some of the yeah. stories uh, around bereavement? That's right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, situations like warfare or, or imprisonment, you know, not many people experience those, even though they are very strongly associated with awakening. But you know, everybody experiences bereavement, as you say. So I think amongst the most common human experiences, bereavement probably has the most spiritual potential. And um, yeah, one example of that is um, um, a woman called, an American woman called Leanne. And she lost uh, a good friend who was murdered. He was working at a nightclub as a bouncer and was sort of killed in, in the crossfire of a, a gang, you know, a shooting between rival gangs. And um, like many people, Leanne, she didn't know anything about spirituality, but she was incredibly distraught by, by a friend's death. She was very close to him. And a few, I think a few weeks after her death, after, sorry, after his death, she was with a friend and it was actually New Year's Eve. They were sort of just relaxing together on New Year's Eve. And the room just began to, you know, sort of change atmosphere. The light became brighter. This kind of golden radiance began to suffuse the room. And she had a, a vision of her, her dead friend who was called Bruno. And she felt that Bruno was speaking to her. Um, and Bruno said something like, um, you know, don't, don't grieve for me. I'm where I'm, I am where I'm supposed to be. I'm happy here. So don't, don't grieve to me. Don't grieve for me. And she also, Bruno, in his kind of spirit form, as she perceived him, he gave, he gave her a message to pass on to his brother, who was also in a deep state of grief. And, you know, she was amazed by this experience. She was, she was living in a very Christian environment in the South of America. Um, so, you know, these experiences are quite kind of taboo, you could say. Um, but anyway, so she passed on the message to Bruno's brother, which turned out to be relevant. He was really shocked because it was kind of a relevant message. And after that, everything changed. You know, she, she sensed that Bruno was somehow with her all the time. But even, you know, in the context of her normal life, her whole attitude to life began to change. You know, she was, she was working as a, in a kind of materialistic job. You know, she was, a, I think it was a, in a dermatology, pra dermatology practice. But she said that her whole attitude to the job changed. She was only concerned with people's wealth. She wasn't concerned with profit anymore. 
She's only concerned with people's well-being. And she also felt this, felt this tremendous sense of appreciation to nature, which she'd never had before. She just loved to be alone in nature, which was not, you know, a normal behavior. She loved to just sort of, you know, look out of the window and see the trees and the sky and the, and the moon. And it was, so it was, a, it was a sort of totally radically life-changing event. And she felt that her relationships with other people became much, much deeper and much more fulfilling. But you know, the only problem with her is that as she lived in a very religious kind of community, she had to kind of keep it, keep a bit quiet about it because she was, you know, she knew that um, it wouldn't be socially acceptable to, to be in contact with <laughs> a deceased spirit and to, you know. But um, yeah, she was, a, I think even without the contact with the, with the deceased person, bereavement can have a very powerful effect. But obviously in her case, it was partly because she had contact with the deceased person. So yeah, I think bereavement is probably the most common, you know, um, situation where this experience occurs in our lives. One of the things you said in your book that I really liked is that there's more of a letting go of old beliefs rather than taking on new beliefs. It's not like additive to your personality or something. In fact, it's more attractive in a way. Exactly. Yeah. That's how it's different from uh, born again religious experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people sometimes say to me, oh, this is just like a born again experience. This is what Christians go through. But it's not really because it doesn't involve taking on any belief system. You know, as you say, if anything, it's about letting go of any beliefs. It's about experience without concepts. And then very few people do interpret their experiences in religious terms. Occasionally they do just because that's the only way they can make sense of it. But that doesn't normally work out very well if they do that anyway, because they, they struggle to fit their experiences in with, you know, the beliefs of religions and the practices of religions. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it, it's about letting go of everything, really. It's about letting go of all of your psychological attachments. It's about letting go of your attachment to possessions, to status, to achievements. It's about letting go of the future, letting go of the past. So all of, the, all of these attachments, they are the things which normally define our identity. I sometimes call them the building blocks of the ego. But So when these attachments are broken, it's as if the, the building blocks of the ego are taken away. And at a certain point, the ego collapses just like a house when you take away the bricks. So that, that process of letting go is actually a process of liberation, you know. So even though it may seem painful during the process of letting go, it actually leads to this marvelous, you know, liberation, this incredible sense of openness and and freedom. You know, there's also a break in temporality. There's a, 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 you know, a shift from this kind of, I think, this kind of linearity from the remembered past, because it's not ever even really the past, it's only the remembered past, and this place of presence, and then this imagined future that's coming and we kind of live in this continuum but it seems like uh i don't know there's probably exceptions to this but there is a break in our sense of linear time yeah that's certainly an aspect of it yeah there's there's certainly a shift from a shift of emphasis away from the future and the past and onto the present mm-hmm. i think the people you know realize that the present is the only reality 
you know, they, they and the world becomes incredibly real. Their experience becomes incredibly real. Mm-hmm. And they, I think, you know, I think the future is one of the things they let go of. You know, they let go of ambitions. They let go of goals, even plans. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I guess, yeah, I guess that's what, and that's another way of defining spiritual awakening. Spiritual awakening is orientation in the present. You know, as Eckhart Tolle says so, so profoundly. So, yeah, that, that's definitely an aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people are not really concerned with their stories as well. If, if you have a story in your life, it's obviously based on the past and also maybe based on the trajectory, traje- trajectory you're heading for in the future. But people, people let go of their stories. You know, they don't really care about their pasts. They let go of the trauma from their past. They let go of resentment from their past. They let go of everything from the past in the same way that they let go of the future. So, yeah, it's as if they're, as you say, it's as if this kind of, it's as if this straight road collapses or just disappears. And suddenly there's nothing but this panorama of the present. There's no more longer any direction. There's just a, a panorama. Yeah. Yeah. I am thinking about stories in here, how much it can really help people. Like you said, a lot of people don't even know they've had an extraordinary awakening to help them to name things that they could be feeling, they could be having an extraordinary awakening and feel very, like like you mentioned about a couple of the people, very out of sync, very awkward, not fitting in, like like being in a in a fundamentalist Christian church in the South <laughs> and having mm. you know spirits talking to you. <laughs> Talk about your, I'm, I'm sure that was part of your intention was really to provide comfort to others. Maybe not comfort isn't the right word, but a, a, a place to feel like it's safe to actually explore these areas that we're getting a whiff of, a scent of, a, a feel in our own lives, but we, we push them away because they don't fit into our... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think a lot of people, I think particularly when spiritual experiences are temporary, People have them, and because they don't understand them, they sometimes repress them. They sort of forget about them. Even you know, I've I've even heard cases of um, near death experiences similar to the experience you were describing earlier that you had. I've met people who who had those kind of experiences, but didn't know how to make sense of them and felt kind of threatened by them because they were so contradictory in terms of their worldview. Like it's their imagination just making this stuff up or something. Yeah, they knew that couldn't be the case because it was so real, but they tried to convince themselves. So they actually, they tried to repress the experiences, but they can only do that for a certain amount of time because they're so powerful. They have to come through eventually. But I think a lot of people have temporary spiritual experiences and repress them because they're socially unacceptable and because they don't understand them. And in the cases, in the case of, of uh, transformation through turmoil, people don't normally repress it because it's such a powerful experience. It's too powerful to be repressed. But it does make some people feel confused. There was one guy I interviewed, another case of a, a person who had spiritual awakening in, in prison. He, he was in prison in, in Africa, in Eritrea for six months. And after three months, he had a, a sudden spiritual awakening. He basically started to meditate, even though he didn't know what meditation was. He began to sort of turn his attention inside and Focus, focus on his breathing because there was really nowhere, nowhere else for his, for his attention to go apart from inside. So that was what he did. So he had this sudden shift, but he didn't know anything about spirituality. So when he got out of prison and returned to, to Europe, people were saying to him, you know, what's happened to you? you you're so different. You know, what's wrong with you? <laughs> have you gone crazy? Did you go crazy in prison? Or they'd say, have you been taking psychedelics? 
they were so confused by him. So he thought, well, maybe, maybe I have gone mad. Maybe this is madness. So he got a book of um, a textbook of psychiatric disorders. And he started to leaf through this book, trying to locate his own condition. You know, am I, am I schizophrenic? Am I bipolar? <laughs> but luckily, he didn't find his condition. So he thought, well, no, I can't be mad because I'm not in this book. And then he found a, a book about spiritual awakening by chance and thought, ah, this is my condition. <laughs> I've actually undergone an awakening. So he, his initial awakening was kind of overlaid with a, a layer of confusion. So he needed to find out about spirituality in order to alleviate that confusion. So, yeah, I'm, I hope that my book will make, make these experiences more widely known so that people can recognize them. Yeah, so, I think you know, one of the, the big pitfalls is that people have these experiences and they try to put them in a box of what they already know. And when it doesn't mm. fit, then they dissociate it really and suppress it. But this is such an important thing that you're talking about here from, you know, the last chapter of your book to me was the most important. I loved reading the stories, but the last chapter, the fact that what is the evolutionary possibility that is happening now that's actually been unfolding for millions of years as an evolutionary process and appears to be establishing itself. You wouldn't know that by reading mainstream media, but establishing itself and expanding and evolving as a phenomenon. Mm. Yeah, well, I've always had a feeling that spiritual awakening is related to evolution. Uh, because if you think about it, if we, if we go right back to the beginnings of life on Earth, right back to the beginnings of the process of evolution, you know, on the one hand, on a physical level, evolution is about increasing uh, variety and complexity in physical forms. But on another level, in an kind of, you know, if you look into the interior dimension of evolution, evolution is about the expansion of consciousness, about the intensification of awareness. So as, as living beings become more con co complex physically, they also become more conscious. They become more aware of their surroundings and they become more sentient. They have more experience. They have a deeper and wider inner life. And that goes right up to mammals, to human beings, and maybe some other highly developed mammals, maybe dolphins, whales. You know, we have a, a very complex interior world. We have a high degree of awareness of our surroundings. So that's that's related to evolution. That's because of the evolutionary process, which stretches, you know, millions of years behind us. But evolution goes further into the future as well. So if you take evolution into the future, it's also an expansion of awareness. And that's what happens in spiritual awakening. Spiritual awakening is, as I said earlier, a process of expanding awareness. So I think spiritual awakening is a kind of, you know, is, is a continu continuation of the evolutionary process. People who become spiritually awakened are actually taking the evolutionary process further. So if you look around the world at the moment, as you say, there's lots of um, bleakness and lots of crisis around the world, but there's also this process of collective spiritual awakening. And I think it's definitely underway. It's been underway for several decades now, if not for longer. You can see it in the way that more and more people are being attracted to spiritual practices and paths. I think more and more people are having spiritual uh, awakening experiences, and that's borne out by surveys. A lot of surveys show that people are having um, spiritual experiences more frequently than ever before. 
And in my case, as a researcher, you know, when I look into cases of transformation through turmoil, I mean, I've said before, it's so easy to find cases. I've found so many cases, you know, almost every week, two or three times a week, usually people write to me to say that they've had similar experiences. And they usually say, I didn't know anything about spirituality until I read your book, or maybe they read one of Eckhart Tolle's books. So I, I think, you know, as I've said before, transformation through turmoil is quite a common experience. But the most important thing about it is the, you know, uh, the process which underlies transformation through turmoil. As I've said before, it's almost as if there is a, a latent spiritually awakened self, which is, you know, residing in people, but just waiting for the opportunity to emerge. And it can only emerge once the normal ego collapses. Then there's a space for it to emerge into. So it's a bit like, um, you know, it's a bit like a, a chick in an egg, which is ready to hatch. It's just waiting for the, the right moment to hatch. And, you know, the fact that this latent spiritually awakened self is fully formed in so many people just waiting for the opportunity to emerge. To me, there's, there's something evolutionary about that. It's like it, you know, almost as if it's, you know, almost as if this spiritually awakened self is latent within the whole human race collectively. And it's beginning to manifest itself in more and more people. You know, maybe over time, more and more people will experience it. And maybe eventually, you know, perhaps in a few decades, maybe a few centuries, if we're still around, hopefully, you know, it will become normal to human beings. And then, and that will be a continuation of the evolutionary process. It will be a, a, further, mo a further movement towards a more expansive awareness. Yeah. I don't know if we have that long, but um, <laughs> well, uh, the, thing, we'll you know, the thing about the crisis, for instance, and we'll get into COVID, but we'll look at, you know, climate change, you know, the immediacy of it. And it's interesting, I saw a graph as um, antibiotics became less effective and people became more questioning about the medical system. During that time, an exact parallel to the, to the curve of the interest, uh, the efficacy of antibiotics going down, there was another curve exactly matching that, that was an interest in holistic health and alternative medicine and mm. herbs and things. So I think it's, it's kind of a similar thing as we have this looming issue that's affecting us all now already. The circumstances are getting, you know, it's almost like a kind of, not incarceration, but it is a, a there's, there's something hanging over us right now. You know, a lot of the people I work with and treat, part of their, their trauma is, is looking at the future. Well, you know, why should I go to school? You know, we're not going to be around or this, these we're having. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, there's a parallel situation as, as we've seen many times already, you know, we, we've discussed many cases where individuals were in situations of great turmoil and they underwent spiritual awakening that applies collectively too. you know, as a species, we're in a situation of great turmoil. Yeah. So perhaps the, the collective awakening which is occurring is connected to that turmoil. You know, and one thing I found in my research again and again is that an encounter with death has a very powerful awakening effect, as in your own case. But even without a, a near-death experience, even without the feeling of leaving your body, just the sheer fact of 
encountering your own mortality and becoming aware of the, the reality of death can have a, a very powerful awakening effect. So yeah, you know, maybe because of the climate crisis, we are becoming aware of the possibility of extinction, species death, but so many species are, are dying anyway, are becoming extinct due to human activities. So we are being confronted collectively with death. So, you know, hopefully that, well, I, I think that is having an awakening effect on us all. I can't remember what they were. You, you mentioned three indications of the shift as it was happening in, in uh, this move towards a greater awakening. What were the three indications? I don't remember them now. Um, the first one was increasing interest in spiritual paths and practices. The second was people are having more, more awakening experiences. According to, according to surveys. Yeah. And finally, just my own research into transformation through turmoil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there are other indications too. You know, we've got just a couple minutes left and I'm always interested in how the individual, because it's, it, it's easy to say, oh, the crises are too big like climate change. But talk about the things that the, that the individual can do to, to call forth the possibility of an extraordinary awakening in their own lives? Well, we've just talked about, we've talked about death and I think contemplating mortality is very important, you know. Yeah. As I've yeah. said, a lot of the awakenings in my book came about just through confrontations with mortality, whether it was through illness or an accident or, or, or bereavement. So I think, you know, I, I always recommend to people, contemplate your own death, be aware of the, the fragility of life and the temporary nature of life, the preciousness of life and the possibility that you can die at any moment. You know, there's nothing morbid about it. It's quite, actually quite liberating to be aware of, uh, of your own death. I, I love to visit cemeteries because uh, they're very peaceful places, but also because it reminds me of the, you know, the value of life and the preciousness and the temporary nature of life. So that's really important. And uh, another important quality is detachment. And I don't mean detachment in the sense of indifference. I mean, not being attached to external things, not being attached to the future or the past, not being attached to possessions. I mean, this is every spiritual tradition talks about the importance of detachment. But that's the, that was the main feature in Extraordinary Awakenings, that process of, you know, breaking down of psychological attachments. So, you know, we can cultivate that in our own lives by, you know, by relying on not relying on anything external for well-being, just realizing that the source of well-being, the source of wholeness is within us. So we can tune into that by partly by turning away from external things, external attachments, but, you know, taking time to live within our own being, to explore our own being through meditation or contemplation. And um, finally, I'd, I'd suggest the importance of acceptance because in many cases of uh, extraordinary awakenings, people underwent transformation in a moment of acceptance. A bit like um, Ananta, who we talked about earlier, how she let go of her resistance and dropped down into the pain. And that, that happens a lot in addiction. People sometimes undergo transformation when they just accept that they, they can't control it. They have no power to control their addiction. They just let go. Um, so that, you know, living in a mode of acceptance is very important too. And also when, you know, when challenges occur in our own lives, when we face turmoil and trauma in our own lives, 
it's very important to respond in a mode of acknowledgement and acceptance. Acceptance seems to be the, the quality which unlocks the, the transformational potential of um, traumatic situations. Beautiful. Really well said. You know, it's funny, we're at the end of our time, but I, I did not plan this, but it's ironic that this is going to air on Samhain and the Day of the Dead, where the, oh, yeah. the veil is thin uh, in that particular time. So it's going to actually air on the beginning of Samhain. So I thought uh, that right. was a perfect... perfect yeah, thing. that's yeah. very... It's very appropriate. Taylor, I'm so grateful for uh, you to take the time to be with us on We Earth Radio and for your work. I want to tell people you can go to www.stephenmtaylor.com for more information. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we leave? That uh, um, Not really. I, I just, um, yeah, it was a really enjoyable conversation. Yeah, it was great to hear about your own experiences. And I, mean, I guess you're an example of transformation through turmoil yourself, you know, after your near-death experiences. I think I am. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. No, so it's uh, no, great talking to you. Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks so very much. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye bye. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.